Welcome to Mosaic, a podcast about theology and theologizing in Singapore, Asia, and beyond. Brought to you by Singapore Bible College. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of our podcast. Uh, today, we have myself, Justin, and Jean here Hi. interviewing a special guest, our co-worker, Dr. Andrew Spurgeon. Uh, Dr. Andrew Spurgeon is professor of New Testament uh, with us here at Singapore Bible College. And he's someone who is taught across the world, uh, across Asia, uh, from his online bio, um, including places like Fiji, India, Nepal, Philippines, the, the US, and of course here in Singapore. He's our fellow faculty member. And one kind of interesting thing to note is that uh, in order, uh, Andrew, Jean, uh, Andrew, myself, and Jean are the three most recent faculty at Singapore Bible College, at least at the time of the recording of this podcast. But it doesn't mean that we are all equal in terms of experience and knowledge. Andrew has many, many more years of experience than we do. Um, and he's also the author of, uh, of various many books, commentaries, and articles. Uh, the most recent of which is a commentary on Romans with the Asia Bible Commentary Series, which I happen to have here with me. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. We're very glad to have you with us. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Jean. Uh, is, there, is there anything else that you'd like to share about yourself before we, we get into asking you some questions? Just the fact that I'm married and have three sons and a daughter-in-law, and uh, I'm an Asian, an Indian. And your, your, your son uh, and your now daughter-in-law have just recently got married this past summer, right? Exactly. Yeah. In June. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Okay, well, um, again, we're, we're so thankful and so glad to have you with us. Um, you are our colleague and our, our, uh, our senior here at, at Singapore Bible College. Um, and and uh, one thing that we can know is that you um, have done a number of works and writings in the past number of years. Uh, for example, I mentioned this uh, Romans commentary, but you've also written a commentary on James with the Asia Bible commentary series. And looking back at your bio and things you've written, I've seen also that you've written a couple of commentaries on 1 Corinthians that uh, are are done intentionally from an Indian background perspective. So, so a question I wanted to ask you, and just feel free to answer however you will, is how would you describe uh, the work that you do personally as a, a Bible scholar? What exactly is, is it that you do? How would you describe your own approach to your scholarship? Great. Thanks, Justin. Um, I think I tried to do two things. And, and if I may give us a picture, I start with an issue that is in India. I try to primarily stay with the India culture that I know, and then go to the scriptures and draw the principle, and then come back again at the conclusion to the topic that I began with in the Indian culture and address how does the scripture fit that issue. For example, uh, bindi or uh, the dot that Indian women have on their forehead and Indian men after a religious activity have on their foreheads. I explain what a bindi is because there is four different kinds of bindi. Uh, and then I deal with the scripture passage that talks about how do we have a symbol on our bodies that represents a God or a deity. And then I come back to explain well, how certain forms of bindi are acceptable. For example, bindi that shows it's a fashion statement for, at wedding, for example, or a bindi that shows that person is married or divorced or single. 
But on the other hand, the bindi that shows that he or she belongs to God Rama or God Krishna, that would not be a bindi that a Christian can wear. So I think the way I look at contextualization is you start with where the people are and then bring in scriptures that help them to be still Asian, but at the same time, a Christian Asian. And uh, I think of my work primarily as an Asian work and how do Asians relate to scripture and apply it in their lives. How do you think um, the texts actually lend your questions or do you actually look for a text after you've got a question? Yeah, with First Corinthians, it was pretty easy because first, uh, current Corinth and their lifestyle really matched Asia, Indian and their lifestyle. So chapters 9 through 10 talks about food offered to idols. That is something that is still practiced in Asia. So there's still food being offered to gods or even to like hungry ghosts for a whole month, right? That would be very appropriate with the book like First Corinthians or the book James, not so with Romans, but yet in Romans, you see chapters 14 and 15, which I think are the primary key chapters dealing with the oneness. And it take, for example, India and casteism. Casteism divides the people where you have the lower caste looking enviously at the higher caste and the higher caste looking down on the lower caste. And Paul's message in Romans is, accept one another as Christ had accepted you. So, yeah, I think every book has principles that we can use to address issues in our culture, but it does come up, it does require that we spend a lot of time understanding our culture. Uh, when I did First Corinthians, uh, Twin Cultures, I titled it Twin Cultures Separated by Centuries, because there is a parallelism between India and a parallelism between uh, and Corinth. And I tried to bring that out in all through the text. So every passage, I will start with the story in Indian culture that matches with the biblical, biblical story, First Corinthians. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So so for me, when I was looking at your you know your your commentaries, and I actually have it open on the screen here, the idea of twin cultures or parallel ideas is a very interesting thing. And and one thing for me that it kind of uh, raises a question about is uh, coming from the Indian uh, background that you were coming from. Do you feel that there are things that maybe you can see in the text or that are highlighted in the text that maybe someone who's not from that background would not be able to see as clearly? What are some maybe examples of, uh, you know, you, you mentioned caste, uh, other examples of ways that your Indian background is not maybe a detriment or something negative, but something positive that you bring to the text that, that highlights something good about it? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Justin. Uh, one of my greatest examples is Levirate marriage. We read about it in the Old Testament. Uh, we explain it to our students, but we forget it is still being practiced in India. And one of my friends who was a pastor in Delhi, he was about to uh, uh, baptize a, a person from a Punjabi culture that had come to Christ Except the day he went to baptize that fellow, he brought three of his wives. Wow. And my Christian friend said, wait a minute, you cannot bring three of your wives to baptize. 
and send him off. And in our conversations later, I asked him, did you ever ask him why does he have three wives? And he said, no, but I'll ask him. And when he asked, he found out that fellow had married a wife, but then two of his brothers have died in war. And, and so he took both of their wives as his own wives had never had any sexual relationship with them, but they were his wives and he did raise them as his own uh, children. So I said to the, my friend, this is a marriage that you can legally officiate because he's not living an immoral life, but at the same time, he is caring for his sister, sister-in-laws and their children, just like the Old Testament culture and live a right marriage. But because we've been trained in the West, we see a man with three wives and automatically say, that must be immoral. We cannot baptize them. Eventually, my friend did baptize that man and his official wife and two sister-in-laws and their children. Right. So I do think uh, there are passages and cultural uniqueness in Asia uh, that um, we don't necessarily see them just with our Western eyes, unless we start looking at them with Eastern eyes. I say that about marriage as well. We teach based upon Genesis, a man must leave his family. And it fits very well in the Western culture where you do start, my son who got married would not move into, move into my house and start his family. He would have his own apartment. Matter of fact, my wife and I helped him set up his apart, apartment soon after he got married. But in Asian cultures, because of space and because of cultural importance, three generations would live in the same family. So we could teach that principle that you do still need to form your own identity as a husband and wife, but we don't necessarily need to say they need to leave the house and have their own house to start the marriage. So you can still teach the principle without literally applying what fits one in one culture, but not necessarily in another culture. Well, that's a very interesting um, distinction that is being made. How would you characterize this distinction? I mean, would you say it's a matter of principle versus practice? Or um, how, how are we supposed to um, judge then? Is it a matter of the act itself, the behavior? How would you go about testing out, in this case, uh, the Punjabi person bringing his two wives? Could you demonstrate how would you conduct the interview. Yeah. And if, and if I can add to this, how would you then apply the, the truth that the text is saying and contextualize, or if, if the con contextualization doesn't really need to happen in such a great degree? So, yeah. Yeah. Good question, Jean and Justin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of think of myself foremost a biblical theologian. So when I read a passage I tried to see, well, what is the core message of that passage? Uh, not necessarily all the outward elements of it, but what is the core message of that passage? And once I draw the core message, then I see, well, could the core message be used uh, in different ways? Take, for example, the uh, core message of hospitality. 
Um, we have this story um, in, in the Gospels, a man comes and knocks at the door at midnight and, uh, and his friend says, well, my family and I are sleeping. The kids are in bed. By the way, that would not make any sense to the Western culture. But in the Eastern culture, it does make sense because kids do sleep in the same bed as the parents. And then eventually the fellow is persistent that the man gets up and helps him. Now, that is so much uncommon occurrences in Asia, especially if you go to village community where they are asleep. And when you have someone come, you automatically give them hospitality. I asked the question of that hospitality. What is the basic message? Basic message is if you can help someone, you should help that person. That's the basic message of hospitality. So when I see a person on the street, or would, even, in, even in the Western world, asking for food or with a sign that says a hungry veteran, I still use the same principle of hospitality. What I can help, I will try to help. So if I'm going to McDonald's and I'm buying a sandwich, I'm going to buy two sandwiches. And as I leave McDonald's, I'm going to give one sandwich to the person that's outside because that is within my room of being able to help. But at the same time, it is not within my power to take him into my house and give him a home because I myself am living in a borrowed house. So I think you draw the principle to the, I guess, Jean, you asked, would I use the word like principle and practice? And I think that's a good terminology to go by. What is the essence of this passage and how would I contextualize it in different places? So you wouldn't say that you expect a uniform practice for every single person? That is correct, Jean. Um, matter of fact, it has a lot to do with our personality, right? Some people take, for example, the homeless, some people are brave enough to go and see them. Uh, they may have not gone through childhood traumas in their lives. They may have very safe uh, life and they themselves probably could do self-defense and are not worried about going and seeing the homeless. But on the other hand, another Christian, she or he may have had such an abusive background. And you say to them, unless you reach out to the homeless like I do, you're not a good Christian. You're just not being sensitive to his or her needs. Mm. Now, we can still say we need to care for the homeless, but in our own style, in our own ways. That's wonderful. How do you think your identity as a missionary affects your scholarship then? Good question. I hmm. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, yeah. I'm asking the difficult ones. <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. I think the reason I want to be a missionary, even though um, there had been chances for me to be a full time worker, is I think me being a missionary gives my churches an opportunity to hear what God is doing in Asia. Um, so I think of my job as a missionary doing two things. One, taking the gospel to unreached places. But more than that, I think of my job as a missionary is to make aware my churches back home of what God is doing overseas. So when I speak in missions conferences, when I speak in Sunday schools, I bring what God is doing in Asia. I give so many Asian examples, this to the uh, 
couple of days ago when we had a Sunday service, we are going through the book of Esther and uh, um, the teacher just passed through the fact that at that time, the kingdom went as far as India. And I said, um, I said, Henry, did you realize this is the only time India is mentioned in the Bible? And he was just totally surprised. And then I said, did you know this, uh, this particular Persian kingdom left an impact in India even to this day? There is a religion in India called Zor- Zoroaster. I can't say it, but anyway, yeah. Zoroastrianism. 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 Yeah, <laughs> that is the element of what was mm. left from Esther's time. So for Indian Christians, they still have the impact of what Esther and Ahasuerus did, even to this day. But for the Western world, you know, Iran is gone, or I mean, Iran is there, but the impact is gone. And when I started to tell them that that in that particular religion, they leave the dead out for the animals to eat, vultures and all to eat, which you can see, and it grossed them out. But that's a common uh, sight we see in India. So um, I think of my mission work as taking the gospel to the unreached and educating my family, church family, uh, back in the United States. It reminds me of the metaphor of being the ambassador. And I think that you're a wonderful ambassador when you cross different cultures and you bridge them and um, just grow in that understanding, not just between God and man, but between man and man. That's really admirable. So oh, thank I, you, <laughs> I think that um, will also allow us to um, ask you a bit more about your work in Asia, particularly your work with um ATA or Asia Theological Association. If someone wants to go to the ATA website, one can find out preliminary information such as the mission, vision statements, the services ATA provides, ATA membership, and even a newly launched ATA website forum. Um, But before we go into such details, would you like to introduce in your own terms first what um, ATA is set up to do? Thanks, Jean. Yeah, I would love to. I had the privilege of writing the history of ATA a couple of years ago, and uh, I was thrilled to find out ATA, Asia Theological Association, not only began in Singapore, but Singapore Bible College was the first college to be accredited by Sing- oh, uh, by Asia yeah, Theological yeah. Wow. Association. <laughs> yeah, the flagship school, apparently. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. The history is really interesting in a nutshell. The Asian theologians in the 1970s, about 70 of them, they realized uh, after like the Billy Graham movement, there was a lot of evangelism done, but not many follow-up or discipleship done. And so at, at the same time, the Asia as a whole was moving more towards they called it liberal theology, which is basically liberation theology rather than systematic theology. So what Asia Theological Association said is that we want to be evangelical. We still want to go back to the scriptures and explain what scriptures are and contemporize it. 
when it began, it was a small uh, organization. They didn't even think they were going to become an accrediting agency, but it was the schools that requested, we want theological education, we want some kind of a uniformity accreditation. So after 50 years later, it has 361 schools under its mm. accreditation in something like 38 different countries, mm -hmm. including United States. Now you think, oh. why is Asia uh, Theological Association accrediting schools in, in United States? These are usually like Chinese schools or Korean schools. They are located in United States, but they are actually uh, composed of Asian students. And that's why Asia Theological Association accredits them. My job, I was kind of lucky to catch this job to be a publication secretary, which means I supervise all the publications that come out of Asia Theological Association. Again, I work with nearly 20 editors. All of them are Asian. They're thrilled to do what they do. We publish two journals, the Asia Theological, sorry, Asia Journal of uh, Evangelical Theology, and then Journal of Asian Missions. And then we have a commentary series, Asia Biblical Commentary Series. And then we also have individual series called um, uh, Facts Series. So we have um, Foundations of Asian Theology, Foundations of uh, Asian um, Ethics, Foundations of Asian Missions, Foundations of Asian Old Testament theology, uh, New Testament theology, and we have many more in the in the works that will come out. In all of them, one thing we try to do actually, are, you can see the definition of Asian uh, publications. But I try to think of it in three things: we are trying to help the Asian church, and we do, of course, focus the element of Asianness, and then third we try to address Asian issues. And so um, like upcoming, uh, one of our upcoming work deals with the street children in Manila. How do you minister to the street children in Manila or the sex trade in Asia? How do you uh, combat that as a Christian or uh, poverty in Asia? How do you combat that as a uh, Asian Christians, what could Asian churches do for these issues? So it's wonderful that you brought up two aspects. One, about the issues, which you've given us examples of. And secondly, you've talked about the Asian-ness, which you've also given us some taste of when you talked about um, how Indian culture also lends itself to a living experience of some biblical cultural practices as well. Could you perhaps flesh out a bit more about this Asian-ness? Because it's quite the title of the Foundations of Asian Systematic Theology, the Foundations <laughs> of Asian Biblical Studies, Asian. So could you perhaps flesh that out for us? Just to give you a little context, Andrew, we've had a little bit of a debate <laughs> about the appropriateness of using Asian and how to use it um, within our little group. So um, just to, to have some of your thoughts would actually be helpful for us, I think. Well, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that discussion. <laughs> we have had this conversation before. Before I became the publication secretary, the topic was people have to be born in Asia. Mm. And, and after I took over, I changed the definition, of course, with the help of the whole body. It's people who love Asians. 
And, and so that's how we define Asian in Asia Theological Association. People either were born here or people who have spent 40, 50 years of their lives here. Uh, one of the foundational uh, founding fathers of ATA was Bruce Nichols, and he was a missionary in India for 50 years. And how could he not be an Asian? You know, I mean, his skin color is New Zealander, but <laughs> everything he thinks about and every, everything he cares about is the work in Asia. So I define Asia as anyone Asian as someone who values and uh, loves Asian so that they never put Asia down. That's how I define what an Asian is. So when I say Asian Christian theology is an Asian Christian theology deals with uniqueness of Asian cultures, but not see them as something bad, but see them as something good that could be used. So I'll take the worst one, I think, of Asian or Indian uh, culture is um, casteism, right? Uh, where it is basically an oppression of one group of another group. Now, usually when you think of casteism, you only hear how bad it is and how we need to remove it. But I think a true Asian Christian theology or an Indian Christian theology will try to see the good things in it. So, for example, people who are low caste in India, they get certain privileges that the high caste do not get. For example, uh, they uh, in a job situation, um, you're supposed to give them a preference uh, if they are qualified, of course, uh, before you do for the high caste because they have had privileged places before. It's kind of like a reverse discrimination, but at the same time, I do think it helps to balance out. So as a Christian, how do we deal with that? How do we do we say to a Christian, a Hindu who becomes a Christian, get rid of your casteism? Or do you say to them, use the good things of your casteism to bring good, but the bad things of your casteism, you remove it. Right. And wow. that, I think, is what makes it Asian, that you don't remove the system, but you see use the system to bring good to the rest of the people. Just just a comment on that, I guess. To me, it sounds that this idea of trying to remove the caste system entirely seems to be uh, like it's not something that just because you're a Christian, you can do. Right. There's a sense of privilege to say, uh, let's remove it or to say, uh, well, you should never live in or engage with society because it you know, adheres to the system, but it seems to me that what you're suggesting, and maybe this applies to other issues as well, is learning how to live embracing sort of the identity in society, seeking to maybe redeem and transform elements of it, um, and seeing, I guess, God's grace and goodness in, in the midst of these things, whether it is casteism or, or say things like uh, poverty or these kinds of other things. Justin, what you said is excellent, because that's exactly what we are supposed to do. We're, we're People who want, for example, casteism abolished are usually people who can get out of India. They are in the Western world. They have their own finances. They're usually rich and they can say, well, we Christians have abolished uh, casteism. But the casteism actually helps the poorest of the poor 
because they can get free land, they can get free food. And um, so if we do abolish casteism, I would love for it to be abolished. Don't misunderstand. I think it is a bad system. Someday we do need to be, uh, we do need to abolish it. But if it's done in a way that helps the poor of the poorest, I think then it's beneficial. But at this moment, it isn't helping them. I think in a way, uh, casteism is helping the poor, but of course it also has evil attached to it that we need to try to remove it. Um, if I were to rephrase it in a way I can understand, are you saying that um, perhaps the push to abolish it immediately does not actually help the poorest of the poor? In fact, um, it may actually take away some of the um, support systems in society for these people, but rather that there would be a there has to be a more constructive way of moving out of that caste system, but perhaps in a more gradual way, so that uh, it's it's not only simply saying, oh, we don't want something, but it is a genuine effort to care and protect while doing so. Is is that what you're saying? Yeah. Great, Jane. Excellent. I'll give a biblical example, because which is what I say to my students. Um, when the Lord Jesus healed a leper, he hugged that fellow. At the same time, he turned around and said, you go and show yourself to the priest. I think what, what with us as Christians, we shouldn't have a caste difference when we look at a person. We should be able to hug them. We should be able to see them as ourselves. But at the same time, we should also be able to turn around and say, but you're stuck in a system, uh, same as I am stuck in a system, uh, where you still need to follow the rules until the right time comes for you to get out of it. So we should also help to get people out of it. But at the same time, it begins with us loving them, that we don't practice casteism, but at the same time, also help them to come out of it using legal means. So this this actually reminds me of something. So you mentioned earlier that your Romans commentary was a little bit harder mm -hmm. to write in a more directly Asian way. I'm guessing because of the more Jewish nuances of, of, of Paul and describing the law and these kinds of things. But one thing that I did key, on, key in on when I was looking at it was your discussion about uh, Romans 13 and um, politically oriented stuff. Um, yes. And I know that this is sort of all tied in together. There's there's some 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 threads we're kind of joining together here. And one thing that you you were noting in in a couple of different places was about as Asian Christians, the idea of how we approach the issue of Caesar and authorities and and politics and government and structures is a big part of I guess what Asian Christians have to think about and struggle with. It's not as simple as uh, government good, government bad, but there's a, there's a bit more nuance, which is maybe I think what we're we're sort of getting at here and what we're talking about. Um, do you have any comments on that? That's a good point. I mean, just comparing uh, United States versus Singapore. Uh, in United States, uh, you can kind of call the president a bad name or uh, make a slogan out of him. Uh, you know, um, I don't want to repeat it, but, you know, you can make fun of him and you can treat him without much respect and it is acceptable. But on the other hand, in Asia, whether it's in India and uh, President Modi or in Singapore, 
you really don't attack your your political uh, leaders. Now you still vote, you still try to influence, you still pray for them, but you also automatically submit to them before you bring a revolution. It works totally different in cultures like Australia. I was jogging one morning and the Australian premier jogged right against me with like no bodyguard, no one. And um, you wouldn't have that happen. President Biden wouldn't be jogging <laughs> at a park with ordinary people are jogging, right? You, you have, um, there is such a difference in how politics are dealt with in Asian cultures that we really need to be conscious of. With Romans, uh, I did struggle with an important issue, theological issue, and since you both are theologians, I'll bring this up to you, is the title Son of God. Uh, and if you do a quick um, search of Son or Son of God, you have it nine times in uh, the book of uh, Romans. But when you, if you like search Christ and then Christ Jesus is 102 times. And so that tells you that Paul himself was moving more towards presenting Jesus as a Messiah than as the son of God, because at that time, son of God was a title for Caesar. So he himself has to be a bit cautious that he doesn't overemphasize the son of God. The issue that we have in Asia Long time ago, uh, one missionary who worked in India from Ireland, uh, Robin Boyd, made this keen observation. He said, for the West, theology is Trinitarian. And so we want to make sure God is uh, presented as a creator. Christ is presented as a savior. And Holy Spirit is presented as the author of the church, right? Ecclesiology. But Asia, he said, Trinitarian is not necessarily the main thing that they should focus on. Instead, ecclesiology is what we should focus on. Now, I'll leave that for the theologians to evaluate mm -hmm. that concept. Okay. But what I have found it really interesting is anytime we have the discussion of son of God, the Western theologians say, well, he is eternally son and we cannot uh, remove the title son of God. Uh, just because the Asians are upset by the son of God. But that what the Asian missionaries deal with is when the minute you say Jesus is son of God, especially in the Muslim majority world, they hear it as Jesus, I mean, God having a relationship with the woman and giving birth to Jesus. But when you ask the Western theologians do you, and say to them, do you really mean when you say Jesus is son of God, that God had sex with Mary? They would say, oh, no, 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 that's not what we mean at all. And so I ask them, if you don't mean that, why do you keep repeating that terminology, which is offensive to a people group who think of their God as very holy? And I say, just, you know, just as Paul, sure, we believe Jesus is the son of God, and we think that is part of his title. But just as Paul emphasized Messiah, Christos, 102 times in the book of uh, Romans, why can't we focus on something else in Asia? So, for example, I would present Jesus as God's appointed Messiah, or God's appointed messenger. That's a term majority Asian, I mean, Muslim majority Asians can understand. They have had 
are the God-appointed messengers, right? It doesn't diminish uh, who Jesus is. He's still the voice of God, as Hebrews writer tells us. But at the same time, uh, once the people become stronger Christians, then maybe we can say, okay, he is also son of God. (laughs) And so I think it's trying to work with the people where just like baiting a fish, right? You toss and you tease them and you get them hooked and then you uh, teach them more theology rather than Mm -hmm. at the beginning itself being very, very offensive. I think that's wonderful. It's just a reminder of us to be sensitive to the context be sensitive to um, the people that we're uh, ministering to and just knowing how we could connect them or lead them or persuade them slightly further along the journey to knowing God. And that is so important in a missions task and not just setting the specific agenda as we must have on the table, the son of God um, without consideration of the context. That's a brilliant point. Yeah. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, definitely. Then perhaps you would answer last one or two questions for us, one of which I'm very, very interested in. I've saved the best for last. Because you are the uh, press secretary, um, you would have observed the trends of the kinds of theologies, themes that Asian scholars are interested in. So would you mind making a few observations of some of these trends? And if I can add, if you happen to have any names or, or titles of books or anything that you find interesting, you know, our listeners could potentially look look for them. And some of these people could even <laughs> potentially be guests for us in the future as well. So feel free to give shout outs to whoever you'd like. To. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Justin and Jean. Yeah, I think I'm really thrilled about where Asian Christian theology is and where Asian scholars are. About 50 years ago, when ATIA began and we were trying to get scholars to write, we could not even, um, we couldn't find many Asian writers. They were hesitant. They were worried that English was not good. Uh, They were worried they could Uh, let go their work in order to stop and write. And I think um, we see a big change in the young people like you guys who are coming out, who go to the West and study and then you come back. I think it has a lot to do with the world changing, where the economy base is changing, where um, people who go to US or UK or Australia, they can still return back to their Asian countries like Hong Kong, Singapore, and have a quality life and be with the family at the same time, right? I think the schools are emphasizing uh, forming indigenous theologies. And so um, we see uh, surgeons of um, um, Asian scholars coming up and uh, that is just absolutely exciting. As far as theology is concerned, I think we are moving away from what I would call wooden um, foundational theologies like Trinitarianism. And we are moving more towards practical justice theories. And I think this is where the new Asian theology should go. So a person is writing a dissertation and then writing a book on what, um, how do we in Asia minister and change the minds of the people with disabilities? How do we as a church, 
Christianity, for example, throw in a name, Dr. Christianity from Indonesia is arguing when uh, people with disabilities come into the church, we usually treat them like guests. We say, well, how could we make things easier for them? How can we uh, not, for example, stand up to sing so that we can help the handicapped who cannot stand up and sing people with disabilities? But he, but she argues, no, you treat us like part of the church. You treat us just like you would be want to be treated. Uh, you are not a person with uh, disabilities, and you don't want to be treated as one with disabilities. In the same way, treat us as a part of the church, not as guests. I think that's a practical justice theory, and I think that's where the Asia is moving. The other one would be like the street people from Philippines. Joy, Dr. Joy Pring is speaking about that, and she is arguing, yes, we again, we have had orphanages that we try to reach out to the people, but we never ask the question, what do the people in the street really want? Why do they prefer being on the streets and at the same time having a good food uh, and not be in a home or not be in an uh, orphanage? And why is being on the street more attractive uh, than uh, elsewhere? I ran into another writer. Unfortunately, I forget her name. She argues that when we are working with sex workers in uh, Thailand, she argues uh, that we tell them to come out and we do deliver them out of their sexual uh, 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 prostitution. But then they look at their income. They were making, let's say, roughly $1,000 a month while they were prostitutes, but now they are redeemed or reformed and they can't even get a job. So they, after a couple of years, would go back to prostitution again. So what she does is she not only brings them out of prostitution and then she uh, trains them to be like concierge in a hotel where they could make equally good amount salary so that they are not tempted to go back and abuse their bodies again, or their families are not tempted to send them back to prostitution. So I think um, I think of the direction that Asian Christian theology should go is practical justice theory. Now, that doesn't mean always mean social reform and always doesn't mean liberation theology. I think it's a it's making theology practical where ordinary people uh, are willing to raise questions and find answers for their struggling questions. The second area I think that we should focus more now than ever before is the family oneness because there's a big big force that wants to, at least in the West, that wants to dispel family unity. And, and, and you know, there's many different various, many different aspects of it, gender equality or tolerance of plurality, gender identity. I don't wanna go into each one of them individually, but I do wanna address an important factor and that is Asian, world as a whole 
had put family as a priority all along. I mean, regardless of even if they moved to another country, they are familial. I mean, it comes to that example. We had a Burmese friend passing through Dallas and we didn't have a home at that time. This is a couple of years ago. And she said, I have a sister in my uh, that we can meet uh, at, at her house. And she gave us an address and we went there and they were there and we were having conversation. And when she said we have a sister and we can meet at their house, we assumed biological sister or a cousin or someone else. And as the meeting was over, we were all leaving and she just says goodbye to them. And there, uh, like, there was no affection or anything shown. So when we got to the parking lot, I said, Are, is she your biological sister or a family member? And she said, oh, neither. She's a Christian in Burma. And I just Googled and found a Christian in Dallas from Burma that could host our meeting. So we went, both of us went into this stranger. And the thing that connected us was we were all Christians. And so they opened their living room to have a con for us to have a conversation, even though they didn't know us from Adam. And I think that's the difference when I say about family oneness. Instead of getting detailed into how all these issues are happening, and I think we need to emphasize what a family is, especially what a Christian family is. And I think the third area where Asian theology is going towards, and I really am happy, is how do you remain in faith in a pluralistic world or pluralistic religious world? So, for example, statements like, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, that may have worked in other generations and other cultures, but I don't think those should be our starting point. Our starting point is God in Christ has reconciled himself to the humanity. Now, what does that mean? And then from that, we should move on where we appreciate the other religions that are part of our society and not attack them, but at the same time, make our faith so vital and so attractive that people are drawn to it. So they see how Christians are joyful people, how Christians are tolerant people, how Christians are generous people, and how Christians are prayerful people, how Christians gather and enjoy and how Christians obey the government, right? Seeing that should draw them to Christianity, not us attacking their faith. And I think these are three areas Asian Christians are going and exciting to see that we are emphasizing practical justice, family oneness, and faith in a pluralistic world. It sounds like there's a strong emphasis on what's taking place on the ground, on people and relationships. And it even sounds like there's a lot of of going back to the basics, like to New Testament church and applied ethics of love and care and hospitality. I mean, solidarity and group culture as opposed to strong individualism. I mean, these these are all it seems like very basic themes, but it's it's interesting that you're seeing these kinds of, of movements. Yeah. Yeah, that is well said, Justin. Yeah. The comment I was going to make um, relates to your last point. It's very interesting because most of the time, the tendency is still for certain groups to insist on orthodoxy and on the correct doctrine. And 
more about being able to articulate what those are instead of focusing on how to live it out, mm. which actually um, is frustrating because a lot of young people don't see how all that talk leads to changes in their lives and they don't know how to communicate those very strict doctrines to a world that is increasingly losing Christian knowledge. Would you like to just expand a little bit more on that, that pluralistic world? Because it's the first time in a thousand years that Christendom is losing like a visible image and we're losing a sense of, oh, that's what a dominant Christian culture should do. But rather it seems as if we each have to work out our own salvation as it were. So would you comment on that? Thanks, Jean. It actually goes along with what Justin also observed and what I see in my own son's lives. We have uh, non-believing sons as much as believing sons. We have told church members, hey, invite them to church and let them come to church and let them hear the gospel. Our church is really a better church than our neighbor's church. We are very relaxed. We are very calm. And the minute that people come to church, that's not what they really see. They see a church that is very traditional, uh, the same program Sunday after Sunday, uh, stand up, sit down, raise your hands, kneel down, you know, they see that and it's almost like forgive me for saying this is like a, a secret society and you need to be part of the secret society to understand I think for the future of Asian Christianity we need to go to where they are so say to them hey listen what are you doing this Friday night which bar are you hopping and I'll join you and then we go to the bar and when the rest of them are for example are getting drunk we don't get drunk uh, we may have a sip of wine but at the same time we show them by our lives we live differently or we say to them hey come to my house and let them come to your house and if you're a married couple uh, bring someone else to your house who are married and let them see how you treat your wife or your wife treats you so that they can see from your life what a practical Christianity is rather than theoretically hearing God is one, uh, Trinitarianism and singing songs. I mean, think about the songs that we sing. I always laugh. Sometimes our songs are almost very animistic. Let the river flow through me. Let the river of God flow through me. And if you were a non-Christian and you walk into the congregation, you think, are they worshiping river God or are they worshiping? For us, it makes perfect sense. We are referring to either Holy Spirit or a revival or something like that. But for the non-believers. So I think instead of demanding that the young people come to church and young people come to Christianity, we should in a way be like the Lord Jesus, take the Christianity to where they are. So if they are, I'm not sure what young people in Singapore do, mm -hmm. but if they are uh, going to Hawker Center, that's where you go with them to the Hawker Center and sit there and show by your life what Christian faith is. Or if they go fishing, that's where you go. You'd rarely, matter of fact, you'd, I, I, I know you're 
doing a podcast, but rarely should they come to our churches because I think our churches are very synagogue style where we all sit in one direction and look to the front and we do some mandras and then we leave after hour and a half. It is not people oriented at all. I think we should be like the early church. Uh, not that not that it was the best church. I think where people's homes were where they gathered, where they saw how people serve each other or how they didn't serve each other, like in the Corinthian style, right? Where they lived out the practical theology on a daily basis. I think it's wonderful how you captured just two characteristics stood out for me. One is that you love these people that you're willing to, that's the second point, seek them out. So um, instead of just sitting and opening the doors and then going on as if it's a club and we're maintaining certain rituals, um, there is a certain lifeliness to our faith that dares to step out and seek the lost. And I think that it's definitely a spirit we need to become enlivened again with. I think so. I think so, Jean, definitely. And if I could comment as well, I guess theologically speaking, then it it sounds like addressing issues that people on the ground, even young people are facing, being more hospitable and open in terms of how we approach theological issues, being flexible in areas where there is need, especially on more frontier types of settings, Um, uh, a more maybe maybe a little bit less focused on rigid orthodoxy for the sake of doing so and a bit more willing to to move and to go and allow our actions to lead as opposed to letting our words determine whether we are inside or outside or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Justin. I think it doesn't have to be only in Asia as well. I think it could be all over the world by our actions. People see that we are God's disciples, right? Rather than by our words. And when I see Christians yell at a ball game and yell cussing words at uh, a referee and then turn around and say, oh, yeah, I go to such and such a church, I want to say, no, I just saw how you worship. And uh, this is not the kind of worship I want. Yeah, it's our daily lives. And uh, as I mean, since we three are faculty, and I think it even comes to this uh, school uh, level, right, where they do they have the freedom to walk into our office at any time? Or do they have the freedom to say to us, no, I'm really struggling with something. I don't want you to report this to the school, but I still want to talk with you. How do I love my wife better? Or how do I fight my depression? Or how do I fight the alcoholism? You know, they should be able to say that in confidence with you and find a leaning shoulder that they can lean on at the same time grow in Christian faith, right? I mean, I'm always happy to see like Galatians 2, uh, uh, Peter falling down again in, in Antioch. It tells me if Peter can fall down many times, we all can <laughs> and we need each other to lean on. Well, um, thank you so much, um, Dr. Spurgeon, for this really enlightening um, conversation. And we've had so much perspective um, from you today, so much food for thought, including how you would actually see your ministry, your identity, and your love um, from God um, coming together in your work, and how also um, in your 
work to facilitate the coming together of Asian theological colleges and its members to have a sense of being confident in expressing theology in the context that we're given to serve in, not necessarily only following practices of the West or those that we inherited, but being responsive to the ground, being responsive to this generation, being responsive to the places that we're in, and being confident to reach out with all that we've been given to make that change as we've been been placed to be um, change makers as well. So thank you very much for um, today's interview. Justin, do you have anything else to add? Oh, I'm, I'm always so thankful to have uh, conversations with Andrew. We we ev- we every so often will we'll meet up and you know have lunch and maybe some other things. And uh, looking forward to seeing him again at some point in the future. But uh, yeah, but definitely glad to have this uh, time to to have a conversation with you about these things. I'm sure we could keep going on and on. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Gene. Thanks, Justin. I've enjoyed talking, and yeah, there's plenty more to explore. And I'm sure we will in the years to come. Uh, most definitely. Thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you. This has been Mosaic, a podcast by Singapore Bible College. Special thanks to Hilary Lim and Micah Singapore for giving us permission to use their music for our show. We would love to hear any feedback, suggestions, or comments that you might have, especially for future episodes. So feel free to contact us through our website at sbc.edu.sg. You can check out the website to discover more about our degree programs, events, and publications. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating, or tell a friend. Thanks for listening.